about history from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past. Hi, I'm Sue Stanfield with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And we often think of slavery as only important to the history of the American South. However, areas throughout British North America and what eventually becomes the United States profited from the business of slavery. And today we're lucky enough to talk to Dr. Christy Clark Pajara, an associate professor in Afro-American studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And she is the author of Dark War Work, The Business of Slavery in Rhode Island. So thanks a lot for uh, talking to me today. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. I um, read the book, or at least skimmed it when it first came out. And then when I was writing the questions, I uh, read it a lot more closely this weekend, and I really loved it. And it was uh, so useful for me. I hadn't realized how much of the 19th century that you covered. So thanks for writing it. Um, I guess to begin with is, um, you know, we know that the first Africans were brought to uh, British North America and sold as slaves um, in 1619. Famously, we say they arrived before the Mayflower. And I was wondering, um, when did slavery move beyond the Chesapeake colonies, uh, Virginia and Maryland, uh, and become economically important in New England? Well, race-based slavery as an institution was embraced in New England fairly early on. Um, In fact, early New England was not that different from the early Southern British colonies where you had a small number of enslaved Africans and indigenous people supplementing the labor of white workers, many of whom were bound laborers or dependents of some source, of some sort. So New England colonists um, embraced race-based slavery um, almost from the very beginning. And so you have enslaved people in the New England colonies in the late 1620s and 1630s. Oh, wow. That's a, a lot earlier than I thought. I assumed it would be um, closer to the end of the 1600s. Well, then I guess this, this might make more sense. Um, you know, when we study how slavery and chattel slavery become part of, of sort of the what becomes the nation, you know, we look at slave codes as they happen in Virginia, for example, uh, the idea that the status of a child follows that of their mother or uh, whether a Christian can be enslaved. Um, but did they create slave codes in Rhode Island or other parts of New England? I mean, did they have these regulations? Um, early on? So they have a collection of laws. They're not codes in the same way where you have you know, a a very strict body of laws that talk specifically about the restrictions placed on enslaved people um, and those who hold them. But just to back up a bit, um, I do think it's important to note that one thing that made the New England colonies different from the Southern colonies when we're thinking about slaveholding was the number of indigenous people that were held in bondage. Um, the enslavement of indigenous people was more prevalent uh, than the enslavement of African peoples in 17th century New England. This changes in the 18th century. 
But in many places in New England in the 17th century, the number of enslaved indigenous people outnumbered that of enslaved people of African descent. Um, like I said, this changes uh, in the 18th century and flips. Um, but that's one of the kind of distinguishing characteristics of slaveholding in New England. Um, so just to give you kind of a concrete example of that, uh, when Rhode Island is first being founded in 1636, one of the things that Roger Williams does is, is facilitate a slave trade between uh, indigenous enslaved people in New England and those uh, in the Southern colonies in the West Indies. Um, and so what really begins as an institution of enslavement for native people thrives as an institution of enslavement for people of African descent in the 18th century. But when you think about the codification of slavery in the British North American colonies, um, I always remind people that it is Massachusetts that passes the first law about slavery in 1641 um, in the bodies of liberty, saying that you can keep people who are strangers um, or who are captured in just wars as enslaved people, um, right? So slavery is first codified in the North and not in the South. Um, that happens a couple of decades after um, Massachusetts codified slavery in 1641. But what you see in terms of slave law in New England is in many ways haphazard. So if I take the example of Rhode Island to begin with, you have these four disparate towns that make up the colony of Rhode Island. And two of those towns, Providence and Warwick, pass a law in 1652 that say that you can't keep um, Black or white mankind as slaves more than 10 years. Um, and then in 1675, they say you can't keep Native people, Indigenous people, as lifelong slaves. But then in 1703, they just begin legislating as if the only people who can be held in bondage are native people and people of African descent. And they are singled out in slave law after that. It refers to Africans and Indians in slave law as the only people who can be held um, in this kind of lifelong perpetual bondage. And in New England, enslaved people have a right to life. They can own property. They testify on their own behalf in court. They have an increased access to um, literacy. And this is largely because you have a very intimate slavery in New England throughout its history of slaveholding. You have one or two people in a household being held in bondage. Um, and what that means is that you have enslaved people that are in close contact with their captors all the time. There are some advantages to that, but there are also some really disadvantages. Uh, the few records we do have of enslaved people in the North that comes directly from them talks about the isolation and the horror of sleeping in the doorway of your captive uh, every hour of every day, the inability to get away, to um, have a uh, family time alone to even have family to create community. You don't have uh, th th those opportunities are, are very restricted in the North because of the pattern of slaveholding. But getting back to the law. So enslaved people are both persons and property in New England. And the ambiguity of slaveholding in the region means that enslavers had wide discretion. And so they had wide discretion to be benevolent 
and they had wide discretion to be exceedingly cruel, right? And so, you know, there's stories of enslaved people who, um, for punishment, were put outside naked in the winter and they would throw water on them. And there's stories of enslaved people who were relatively well clothed and fed, right? You have this incredible um, spectrum of experience and treatment. But what was almost universal is a lack of autonomy in their day-to-day lives. And knowing that as property, your situation, um, your treatment could change on a dime. I think it's still hard for me to wrap my head around, you know, this idea of the prominence of of slavery in New England, Um, just because you think of um, slavery being intertwined with labor-intensive crops like tobacco or or cotton. And so I'm kind of curious, in places, um, you know, in Rhode Island, are they, are the majority of the people that profit from slavery profiting from the slave trade, you know, since it's a, a coastal state, or are they also profiting from labor more than just like domestic labor, but I'm saying, are there uh, slave labor used in broader economic senses in Rhode Island? Absolutely. So what makes enslaved people so valuable throughout the Americas is that you can teach a person to do anything. So you have, you know, a governor in Rhode Island who, instead of using the allowance given to him by the colony, for, well, by the crown, for um, keeping his records, he has an enslaved man do it because you can teach them to read and write and cipher, right? Um, And slaveholding is highly concentrated in New England among among farmers and um, tradesmen. So if you're a blacksmith and you have an enslaved person, you're going to be really successful because you're going to have a forever apprentice who only gets better at what they do and never becomes your competition. If you own a store, you can have an enslaved person do the warehousing, clerk the desk. Um, If you're a farmer um, in the Narragansett country, you can have enslaved people raising livestock like the Narragansett Pacer, a horse that was prized in the West Indies. You can have enslaved women running dairies you know, uh, making different kinds of cheeses. If you're in the whaling industry, you can have enslaved people doing that. And so in New England and in the North in general, enslaved people are present in every facet of the economy. Every job you can think of, they were doing. And so it's this really skilled, flexible um, workforce that allows for New Englanders to become entrepreneurs. Because if you're somebody who has someone who can do the farm labor for you or mind your store, now you can go out and become a lawyer. You can start another business, right? And so Joanne Pope Mellish in Disowning Slavery talks about how important it was for entrepreneurship to have someone who you own to do all of your kind of mundane chores so you can go out and start businesses. But at the same time, the economy itself is wrapped up in the business of slavery in New England. And when I say the business of slavery, I'm talking about um, all of the industries that benefit from slave labor outside of the colonies. So if you think about pillars of the economy in New England, there really were two um, in the colonial period, and that is the transatlantic slave trade and the commodities trade. The transatlantic slave trade um, 
was grounded in New England um, and in Rhode Island in particular. More than 80% of all the slave ships that left from North America left from a port in Rhode Island. And then the rest of those 20%, most of them left from a port in New England. Very few slave ships ever leave from Southern ports. Um, And what this means is now you have a shipbuilding industry. Now you have a sail making industry. Now you have people that are professional sailors. They load ships, right? What's loaded onto those slave ships? Local product, specifically rum in particular, right? And so you get an economy that is built around the slave trade and the commodities trade. The commodities trade is what I think um, most people know the least about. So you have the transatlantic slave trade being very important uh, in the economy of New England, but you also have this trade between New Englanders and West Indian colonists, right? And so New Englanders are providing West Indian colonists with firewood because you need to burn um, as much wood as possible so you can... um, it's part of the sugar making um, pro- uh, process. You have to boil the sugar. They have failed all of the trees in New England to grow sugar cane. So they're importing huge sums of just firewood. Um, and they also are importing livestock from New England, right? Whether it be cattle or it be horsepower um, or pork. They also get most of their foodstuffs from the New England farmers. Um, We often celebrate and talk about the small New England farms and families. They're growing food for enslaved people in the Sugar Islands in the West Indies. During the American Revolution, there's famine in the West Indies because that supply chain is interrupted, right? The codfish that is being that is being fished off the coast of New England was called Jamaica fish because it was the primary protein for enslaved people in the West Indies, right? So they're getting foodstuffs, firewood, um, livestock, and in exchange, uh, and also cheese. Um, uh, they're making cheeses in the Narragansett that are also being shipped to the West Indies. And what do they get in exchange? They get um, they get molasses and a little bit of cash. The cash is important because this is largely a barter economy. So anytime you can get your hands on cash is critically important. And they're getting molasses, which is a byproduct of sugar production. Molasses is really important because it's the key ingredient in the number one export from New England to Western Europe, which is rum. And and rum was recession proof. Then and now people are going to have their alcohol. Right. And so what does everybody in Western Europe want? Do they want the corn they're growing, their little bit of wheat, their pork, their cheese, their cod? No, they're not interested in that, but they really do want that rum. And that rum also then feeds into the transatlantic slave trade because rum becomes a currency in the transatlantic slave trade. Right. And so whether you're looking at the slave trade or the commodities trade and also just another big commodity in the commodities trade were candles. Um, this is where the Brown family, as in Brown University, is named after makes their money. It's in candles um, from the whaling, right? So you use whale oil, right? And so you have an entire economy that is wrapped up in the business of slavery. And then you have the most successful, stable, and wealthy farmers and tradesmen being slaveholders. So you have an entire economy that's about slave labor. 
but it is rarely ever taught that way, right? We learn about these small family farms in New England and the stories of the Puritans, but we don't ever learn where their food goes. We know that rum is a number one export, but we don't talk about where that rum is coming from and what they traded to get that. And we talk about it as if it's separate. No, and I think that's um, that's so important is I think, I think students are taught and we're all taught uh, from an early age that this is part of, you know, the economy in the South and that somehow uh, the North is, is guilt-free. Um, you know, when they tell that narrative of the Civil War, the, the North is industrialized, South depends on agriculture. So they're the, the part of, of the sin of slavery, but that original sin is practiced North to South. And, and I think, you know, and it, and it could, yeah, and it continues to be practiced even after the Civil War. I remember when I first started reading this material um, and, you know, Lorenzo Green wrote The Negro in Colonial uh, New England in 1941. It was just recently updated by uh, Jared Hardesty, um, who wrote it's Black Lives, Native Lands and White Worlds. And it's about slavery in New England. It came out this year. Um, but he wrote it as an update, but it's much more than an update to uh, the Negro in uh, colonial New England, as it was you know, titled in 1941, um, really centering how important slavery was to the social, economic, and political development. So historians have been talking for a long time about the role of slavery in the economy um, and society of, of the North and New England in particular, but there has been very little trickle down to the general public or K through 12. And it's because the myth of the free North is so pervasive in movies, in textbooks, in museums. There's not any real public commemoration of slavery in the North. I mean, Brown University, just within the past five or six years, has acknowledged um, the fact that that institution exists because of the monies that were donated to it by slave traders and slaveholders, right? They had told a story of themselves that was all about Moses Brown, the abolitionist brother, and ignored the stories of all the other Browns that were deeply invested in the business of slavery and were slaveholders. Um, and so it, that's, that's a purposeful narrative. And after the American Revolution, New England becomes even more dependent on the business of slavery even while slavery falls apart in that region. And you only have to look to the mills. Uh, you mentioned the Industrial Revolution. We talk about the Industrial Revolution as if it's separate from the expansion of slavery in the South, and it wasn't. I mean, if you go to the Lowell Mills today, you can go on tours and it'll never mention slavery, as if that cotton fell from the sky, as if that cotton wasn't picked by enslaved people. And then when you think about shipping and dock workers and longshoremen up and down the northeastern coast, what are they loading onto those ships? It's mostly cotton. By the time we get to the middle of the 19th century, cotton accounts for 58% of all U.S. exports. So it's not only important to the domestic economy, it's important to the export economy. And where is it milled? It's milled in New England, right? Where is it sold from? It's sold from the New York Stock Exchange that's originally just called the Cotton Exchange. And yet we talk about the Industrial Revolution in the North 
as if it's separate from the South, as if all of those factories in New England and the North that are making farming implements aren't making farming implements for the plantations of the South. But but you're right. And we we, we separate it out and talk about it in contrast instead of in concert. But many times people learn about those mills and it never crosses their minds or the fact that Levi Strauss bought their patent from a Negro cloth mill, as it was called in Rhode Island. And now we just call them jeans. And that starts off as slave clothing. Right. And now it's just ubiquitous American fashion. So I know when we think about the end of slavery in in the north, you know, you have, you know, Vermont that writes in their original cons, you know, constitution before they become a state, that they're going to abolish it. You have the painfully slow, gradual emancipation in Pennsylvania, and then the court doing it immediately-ish in, uh, in Massachusetts. But what role, um, how, does, how does Rhode Island embrace this idea of ending slavery? So, you know, in Rhode Island, it, it's like most northern states. They have gradual emancipation laws. And so they pass a law in 1784 that says the children born to enslaved mothers shall be indentured to their mother's master until they reach their majority, which was 21, right? And so you have this legal um, disentanglement from slavery. Rhode Island doesn't abolish slavery outright until 1842. Mm. And so you have this torturously long process. And Gradual emancipation is really informative when we think about how slavery ends in the North. It's informative because it reminds us of how important slaveholding was that they couldn't just let go of it, right? Like Vermont is really the only place. And even there, it was gradual because when Vermont abolishes slavery, it abolishes slavery for adults, right? The gradual emancipation laws just drag it out even more. Like if you were born you know, a day before March 1st, you were still legally a slave for life um, uh, in Rhode Island. And in Massachusetts, it's a result of enslaved people filing suit and enslaved people filed suit everywhere. It's just in um, Massachusetts when Elizabeth Freeman, formerly known as Mumbet, and then um, Quack Walker um, is filing suit. They're successful because there are some rogue abolitionists on the uh, Massachusetts Supreme Court. But you have this, this, this long legal process of untangling from slavery. And what's really interesting is when you start to look at the census and see that most Black people in New England, and this is true of the North in general, but true in New England, are free before any gradual emancipation law would have freed them. Uh, there's a great article by John Wood Sweet called More Than Tears. And he's one of the first historians to look at this seriously. Like, why is it that so many Black people are free before the emancipation laws would have freed them? And it's because they see a crack in the institution and they tear it open, right? They are making bargains. They're threatening masters. There's great letters where people say things like, I will be your good and faithful servant for the next two years, if you promise to free me, if not, I'll be nothing but trouble. And this institution is falling apart anyway, right? And you get people that are petitioning the government, you get others who um, are participating in the Revolutionary War, so they get their freedom that way. But it is enslaved people themselves that really destroy on the ground the practice 
of perpetual lifelong slavery uh, in New England. I mean, and that's, I think that's the story we forget to tell, you know, from, from that time period, even, you know, up to the Civil War. We had so many slaves, you know, fleeing to Union lines, freeing themselves instead of waiting for, for someone else to come in. Yeah, this idea that liberty and freedom was granted to them is just incorrect. They took it. Yeah. Right. They fought for it. Um, I am somewhat um, familiar or I read about um, populations of free people of color and you know, mostly I, in my own research, I focus on Philadelphia, look a little bit at New York and Boston because these all have fairly large free black populations, or at least in the case of Boston, such an active anti-slavery movement that it, mm-hmm. it changes the nature of, of organizing. But I wasn't really familiar beyond a couple of, of smaller organizations, what was going on in, in Rhode Island. And I was wondering if you could um, talk to us a bit about how the sort of infrastructure of freedom, you know, building churches and schools and all of that, how is that happening in Rhode Island? It's happening in fits and starts. So for newly freed people, this struggle for real lived freedom was circular. There was no steady progress forward. Instead, you know, this is a this is a fight for equality that's in fits and starts. It's small victories and disappointments. But I do think it's important to note their tenacity. I was blown away by these small populations of Black people who remain in places like Providence and Newport. And many times there's just several hundred of them. And they pool the little resources they have to create mutual aid societies. The first Black mutual aid society actually comes out of Newport, Rhode Island in 1787. It's the Free African Union Society, and it was actually founded in 1780 not in 1787, but the Free African Union Society. And they post this public letter that just blew my mind. And they post it in Providence. um, And they say, come and join us. We are a persecuted people in this place. And the only way we're going to survive is if we depend upon ourselves. And they even plan a return to Africa. (laughs) They want to go back. They think that things are so bad in New England for Black people that are being socially, politically, and economically marginalized that they say, some of us just want to up and leave. Their plans get thwarted by a local white abolitionist who is um, upset that they didn't like seek out his permission before they started planning uh, this return to Africa. And so he won't write them letters of character for the Liberia colony, which required white people to write letters of character. Um, But it tells you something about how these Black people are seeing themselves. And instead of just despairing, they continue institution building. So just to give you a sense, there's the African Benevolent Society that started in 1807, the female African Benevolent Society that's in 1809, the African meeting house in 1819. And then you just start seeing a proliferation of churches. And most of these associations fall apart within less than a decade, but they never quit trying to build them. They just do it again and they do it again. And they finally 
get some stable organizations. They finally get neighborhoods that they can call their own. And then these organizations and neighborhoods are under attack by um, whites who see them coming out of their place and they're threatened by free Black assertions of freedom and autonomy. Um, And you get a series of race riots throughout the North. And so Providence, that has the largest Black population in Rhode Island, sees race riots um, twice, uh, the Hardscrabble riot um, in 1824, the Snowtown riot in 1831, um, that demolishes Black buildings and organizations. But those riots tell us that Black people were building things, were becoming homeowners, um, were building communities worth reckoning with. Um, But it really boils down to tenacity because people are exiting bondage with little to no resources. Well, um, I know you're from the Midwest, not just now, but grew up there. And I'm curious, what led you to want to study slavery in Rhode Island? Um, I read Disowning Slavery in uh, Leslie Schwamm's seminar class on slavery um, at Iowa. And it blew my mind because I didn't know anything about slavery in the North. I thought of slavery being a Southern institution and that if there was slavery in the North, it was pretty rare and it was fundamentally different. Um, I thought that it was nicer, milder. And I read Disowning Slavery and they're talking about, you know, people that are professional whippers. And then it, it just kind of exploded my mind. I was like, of course, like climate is not going to make people nicer. You know, you, climate is not going to make somebody want to stay in bondage, right? That I had fallen for these kind of old myths and tropes that had been told about slavery. Slavery is terrible everywhere um, and anywhere. And there is no nice way to hold somebody in bondage. There's no nice way to deny someone their liberty every hour of every day. And it told the story of how New Englanders forgot their slaveholding past and how they did it on purpose and how they created these stories of all white spaces where there had never been any contest over slavery or freedom. And I said, I got to study slavery in the North. Um, And so I started reading everything I could get my hands on. And there were two books that really stood out to me. Um, One I already mentioned, Lorenzo Green's The Negro in New England. He spent a lot of time talking about slaveholders in Rhode Island. I was like, that's strange. And then I read Jay Cotry's The Notorious Triangle. This came out in 1981. And he basically lays out the case for why the transatlantic slave trade from the vantage point of British North America and the United States was actually just the row of island slave trade. That it's Rhode Island that dominates and directs this trade in every way possible. And that blew my mind. And then, you know, as I'm looking at graphs of... um population, I'm like, why is 10% of the population of Rhode Island enslaved in 1750? That was like twice the Northern average. And in places within Rhode Island, like Newport or Narragansett or Providence, every fourth person was enslaved. And I was like, what is going on here? Um, And so I got really interested in Rhode Island. And I started looking for the book on slavery in Rhode Island, and it wasn't there. And I said, that's insane. How is it not there? They have the large number of enslaved people in comparison to all their neighbors. Like 
Connecticut, Massachusetts in 1750 is like two or three percent. Rhode Island was 10, right? They are dominating this transatlantic slave trade. And I was like, clearly there's a connection there. Um, And there wasn't a book about slavery in Rhode Island. And so that's how I became really interested in it. And, you know, New England is a place that loves its history. Um, And so there are a lot of both public and private historical societies. And Rhode Island was small enough for me to visit every single one because it's smaller than most counties. It's 30 by 40 miles. Yeah. Right. That's that's it. So I felt like I could write a dissertation on that. I could visit every historical society in that state and try to really get a handle on what slavery looked like in that place. And so that's why I ended up picking Rhode Island. Well, as we, we wrap things up, I'm, I'm curious, is there someone you think we should know about or uh, you want to tell us about that isn't really covered in history books or uh, historical memory? I think that there are two people, and I'll try to be really brief. So the first is Cato Prince, and he has a, he he wrote his own story. Um, so Cato Prince was born in the Narragansett country, so in southern Rhode Island, three years after the slave trade was banned in the state, and all the slave traders ignored the ban, um, and six years after the gradual emancipation law was passed. So he's what we would call a statutory slave. So somebody who is enslaved for a time. His mother runs away when he's young, um, leaving him and very young siblings, which leads me to believe that something really terrible was going on for her to leave her three young children. And he grows up and he hates his position because most people, Black people around him, are free, are becoming free, and he's in this statutory slave limbo, right? And for all intents and purposes, is treated like property. And he runs away when he's a teenager, and he, then he gets uh, his uh, his uh, enslaver finds him. You know, it was just bad luck. He had run away to work on a ship, and the ship was coming back in, and his enslaver saw him, right? Recaptures him. He runs away again anyway, even though there's like a couple of years left on his status as a statutory slave. But the fact that he continually runs away tells us how discontent Black people were with that status. Like he could have just waited until he was 21, but he didn't do that. He felt like he should be a free person. And he ends up becoming a um, a preacher, right? And he supports himself as a farm laborer. But every Friday, he leaves to go preach in different areas. And this infuriates his employer, who wants him to stay around, because he often will come back late, maybe Monday or Tuesday, because he was off preaching somewhere. And he is a, and his employer is a former slaveholder who is used to controlling the movements of Black people. And he has Cato Pierce arrested um, for coming back to his place of employment late, which is illegal because he's not his slave, right? He doesn't own him. And Cato ends up getting released because people were like, "Um, you can't do that. And the circuit judge is here anyway. Um, But it's telling in how white people continued to think of themselves as being in charge of the time and the bodies of Black people. 
And so Cato Pierce gets jailed for preaching. And so he tells his own story. But I think his story is very instrumental in understanding how slavery lingers in the North, how whites hold on to these ideas of what mastery is and how black people push back against those ideas as they seek their freedom. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much for your time. This was such a, a great learning experience. And I, and I hope we all kind of will start thinking about slavery in a, a different manner. And certainly as you were talking, I, uh, Tom Cotton's recent statement, slavery was a necessary evil. It's oh, like, how can anyone make this argument? And so um, I think looking at sort of the broader swath of slavery is always so useful for people to, to think about. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, you are very welcome. And, you know, it's always a joy to, to talk about um, these lesser known uh, histories and you know, how Black people were active agents uh, in their own histories um, and weren't just acted upon. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to share with you. Podtextualizing the Past was created by Susan Stanfield, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios. 